0: Hello, and welcome to episode 84 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Before we kick off today, a big thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new supporters that is Lemonade Clarkin, Claire Gibbs, Christian Dees, and Bethan Truman, who's increased her donation. Thank you all so much for your support, it is much appreciated. Today's story returns to the familiar theme of seemingly ordinary, even on the surface, dull people living the most extraordinary secret lives. And when that life comes crashing down, well, the results can be catastrophic. I'm delighted that this week's show is sponsored again by The Economist. For over 170 years, The Economist has helped inform our thinking on a range of issues. Not just economics and finance, It covers a range of subjects from politics and business, to science, technology, arts and the environment. There is lots in the current issue for fans of true crime across the globe. Two articles in particular stood out for me. The first is Timely, with the World Cup upon us, and it's about corruption among football officials in Africa. Just how predictable and incredibly brazen it is, and will they face charges? Take a look. There is also some excellent insight about how crime in the UK is back on the political agenda, with both major parties fighting for control of the argument as the UK crime rate spirals. Read both these articles and the rest of the magazine at economist.com or get a print copy of the magazine today to learn more. The Economist is a smart guide to the forces changing your world. Get your copy today. And the good news is that to receive a free print copy of The Economist, You just need to text the word CRIME to 78070. Support this podcast and receive a free copy of The Economist by texting CRIME to 78070. Thank you. Let's set some context for the main events of today's story. That's going back to December 2009. Number one in the charts, somewhat ironically, what we're about to talk about was a bad romance from Lady Gaga, Just Keeping Peter Kay, and the official Children in Need medley off the top spot. In the US charts, Empire State of Mind by Jay-Z and Alicia Key enjoyed Time at the Summit. And in the Australian album charts, it was another favourite artist of this show, right up there with Dazza, Susan Boyle with I Dreamed a Dream, awesome, kind of. In the news this month, Barack Obama accepted the Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo. Tiger Woods announced an indefinite leave from professional golf to focus on his marriage. And James Cameron's film Avatar was released. In the UK, after 27 years, the much-missed Terry Wogan presented his final breakfast show on BBC Radio 2. And on the 7th of December, the Ministry of Defence announced the death in Afghanistan of a soldier from the 1st Battalion, the Royal Anglian Regiment, taking the total number of British troops killed there just in 2009 to 100. Pershaw is a small market town to the southeast of Worcester on the banks of the River Avon in the west of England. With a population of around 7,000 people, it was the birthplace of Toya Wilcox Remember her, and some geezer from the band Dodgy. Melinda and Jonathan Palmer lived in Pershaw, having moved there in May 2008, looking for the pleasures of the rural existence. I love this part of the country and fully understand the move. The pace of life feels a little slower. People are actually friendly and have time to talk, and it feels a million miles away from the anonymous nature of our big cities today. The couple lived in a lovely home known as Windy Ridge, and they had lots of plans to develop the house further, including turning the garage into another bedroom. Melinda's sister, Penny, visited in September 2009. The two sisters were close, although since Penny had emigrated to Canada, they didn't have much face-to-face contact any longer. Penny wasn't overly enamoured with her sister's choice of husband, but 57-year-old Melinda had now been with Jonathan for over 30 years, and she accepted him, as we do, as he made her sister happy. Although some may have seen the Palmer's lives as a little dull and unadventurous, who are we to impose our views on how others choose to live their lives and what makes them happy? Although Penny certainly didn't find Jonathan very interesting, she was pleased to see how the couple were clearly still in love and devoted to each other. They seemed to spend a lot of time together, and she'd never heard them argue. 57-year-old Melinda Palmer was blonde and bubbly, and having recently retired, she was excitedly planning their retirement in the Worcestershire countryside. She grew up in Putney, West London, with two brothers and her sister Penny. She studied at Sheffield University and met her future husband in a nightclub in the city. When they met Jonathan, he was pretty outgoing at the time. He was telling jokes, and a bouncer asked her if she was being bothered by him talking to her, but she replied, No, actually... I think he's rather cute. And from there the couple married in 1983, but unfortunately for them were unable to have children despite having IVF treatment. Melissa did become pregnant, but sadly suffered a miscarriage. Although devastated as Melinda desperately wanted children, she channeled her energies into her career at Transco and National Grid, eventually rising high up the management ladder with British Gas. She was a popular and talented colleague, described as warm and compassionate, with a brilliant smile and a just-get-on-with-it attitude to life. She displayed good humour at work and was said to be a calming influence at heated meetings. And despite her senior position, Melinda always had time for people and was seen as kind and caring by all. After the marriage, the couple lived in Sheffield for a couple of years, before later moving to Solihull where Jonathan worked as a part-time debt collector. Whereas Melinda was ambitious and a high achiever, Jonathan had no such aspirations from his career. He tended to drift in jobs, and he didn't ever seem too fussed by achieving career success. As a man, he didn't seem to earn any course of self-discovery during his life. Like me, you no doubt cringe about some of the things you used to believe when you were younger. I mean, for me there was a time that I feared that the mighty League United were not the greatest football team ever seen. I know, scary stuff. But Jonathan didn't seem to develop his thoughts and his, his view of the world. He wasn't interested in current affairs and he would very black and white opinions which didn't change. He was one of those annoying people it was impossible to debate with as he always knew best. He never did any reading and he didn't like any form of exercise. But eventually both retired from their jobs to look after Melinda's parents who were getting older and needed help. It was typical of Melinda that she wanted to take responsibility for their care. But the arrangement sadly ended after only one year due to a personality clash with her parents and her husband. And so much to Melinda's disappointment, she had no choice but to put her parents into a nursing home. The house the couple had bought for the parental care plan was sold for half a million pounds and Melinda took voluntary redundancy from her work securing an extra £70,000 redundancy payment and along with her very good pension they were financially pretty much okay. Jonathan also took this opportunity to retire and the pair moved to Worcestershire Retirement can be a challenging time for even the closest couples as the relationship dynamic can quickly change and roles and responsibilities are different Before retirement, it was clear that Melinda was the prime breadwinner and she managed the finances. But Jonathan, he certainly enjoyed spending the money. He liked fancy gadgets and he always had the newest mobile phone and an expensive car. Melinda's salary also allowed the pair to take regular holidays in a timeshare apartment they owned in Portugal. In retirement, Jonathan Palmer was increasingly fond of a drink. In fact, While Melinda busied herself with her hobbies and interests, he spent every night drinking six to eight cans of lager, watching TV or using his computer, rarely getting to bed till 2 or 3 a.m. Melinda knew he was an internet gamer, but she certainly didn't know that via these internet game sites he had met two women, and both of whom fulfilled his sexual fantasies. The first of these women was Jackie Marshall, who he'd started speaking with around July 2009. They started talking online, and then progressed to the phone where the conversation quickly turned sexual, and they regularly exchanged talk of sex acts and sexually explicit pictures. Jackie told friends that she'd quickly got very close to Jonathan, and they really got on well, and so the relationship continued to progress quickly. Soon they were meeting face-to-face, and then most Thursdays, Jonathan would leave his home in Worcestershire on the pretext of playing snooker in Leicester, the town where he grew up. In reality, he'll be having sex with his lover Jackie Marshall at a home in WorkSop, Nottinghamshire, whilst her 11-year-old daughter was at school. Unsurprisingly, Jonathan hadn't told Jackie the truth about his home situation. I know, I know, middle-aged man lies about his life to woman on internet sites isn't exactly news. But Jackie, like so many of us, wanted to believe all that she was hearing. We all, well most of us, just want to be happy. And Jonathan certainly seemed like he could make her happy. The mum of two was separated from her husband and she was working in a bar at the time they met. She believed that Jonathan was wealthy, single and renovating two houses that he owned. He had talked of marriage and promised they would be together at Christmas when they could plan their future for 2010. They visited estate agents, where he would be looking at homes worth 450000 500000 and upwards. Living a lie isn't easy, and when he accidentally let slip that he lived with a woman, he again lied to Jackie that his wife was his ex. He also lied again that his long-term partner had been killed in a traffic accident. These stories were not just covering his tracks, they were designed to inspire sympathy and appeal to Jackie through his vulnerability. He told her that he no longer needed to work and was just renovating the houses for a bit of fun. He was also very generous with Jackie and her family, spending money on her food shopping and as they approached Christmas 2009, he nine, he'd spent heavily. He bought Jackie and her children perfume, a handbag, computer games, a coffee grinder, clothing and toys. He offered to give her money if she needed it, and in one text stated, I adore you. We'll be together after Christmas, then we can plan what to do with our lives. I'll never stop loving you, Jackie. But for a man so seemingly ordinary, he'd plenty of love to give, and this extended beyond his wife and his lover Jackie. For two years he'd been conducting another affair with Beverly Fawn, who lived near Southampton on the south coast. Like Jackie, The relationship had begun on an online gaming platform and the two made computer contact when Jonathan was helping to care for his wife's mum and stepdad. In the afternoon, he had time for these things while they slept. Like with Jackie Marshall, he lied about his circumstances. Although for Beverly's benefit, he told a different set of lies. In phone texts, he told her that he was a fireman and he gave Beverly a false name and age to stop her tracing him. In the two years they'd only met once at her home and they'd had sex on that occasion. Jonathan knew that Beverly was vulnerable and had suffered a number of issues in her life. She had low self-esteem and she wanted a permanent relationship which she was happy to promise. Beverly was having trouble with her ex and she cried a lot on her phone calls with Jonathan. He felt that she became very clingy quickly, very needy, but he did not discourage this emotional dependence. He told her that a former girlfriend might kill him if she discovered their affair, as well as telling Beverly that his fear of attack had persuaded him to change jobs and he'd been moved to Germany, and this is why he couldn't see her very often. Jonathan, he bought a special phone used purely for conducting his affairs, and used that phone to exchange hundreds of text messages, sometimes more than 200 a day, with Beverly and Jackie. Some of them had contained photographs of sexual acts. He encouraged his mistresses to take these pictures and he took great pleasure from them. However dull his day-to-day life appeared, Jonathan relished a secret life he had developed with his two lovers where he could indulge his sexual desires. But then on December 22nd, 2009, everything changed. At 8.27pm, A distraught Jonathan made a 999 call to police saying that his wife was dead. He'd been out for the day and while he'd been gone she had seemingly been murdered in a botched burglary. When police arrived Jonathan told them how his home had been targeted on another occasion and how recently an intimidating group of Eastern European men had called up to five times and asked his wife about a vehicle sale. He said she'd also recently been petrified by a lorry driver who had sworn at her in their lane and forced her to back up her car. He wept as he recalled how he arrived home at 8pm to find blood in his rear hall. He thought at first that a cat had brought a bird into the house, and he then found his wife's body at the bottom of the stairs. She was cold. I knew I had lost her. I was kneeling over and put my arms around her neck and squeezed her, he said. He thought he'd heard voices upstairs and went to check if any of the intruders were still in the house. But Jonathan Palmer was in for a nasty surprise when the police, suspicious about the apparent break-in, arrested him the same night, suspecting him of murdering his wife. Sixty investigators were soon on the case. A forensic expert, who had attended over 2,000 house burglaries, concluded that the break-in had been rigged jewellery worth £4,000 had been untouched. Palmer put his blooded clothing in bags and dumped them, but his blood-stained fingerprints were discovered at his house. Although he said that these were from cuddling his dead wife, investigators believed he'd moved his wife's body to a hiding place away from windows, wrapping the head in cling film to stop a trail of blood. Scene of crime experts believe that he launched his horrific attack on his wife upstairs but then chased Melinda through the house. He bludgeoned her to death in the hall with a heavy weapon, which was never found, causing deep skull fractures which penetrated her brain. But why would he do this? Unbeknownst to the police, Palmer had thrown away his affair phone on the day that Melinda died, but searching his car, police found a memory chip on the car floor and were able to retrieve some messages. Police believe that Melinda had found the same phone on the morning of December 22nd and that is why in a fit of rage Palmer killed her. After the murder he needed an alibi which is why he then sent a text to Jackie Marshall saying Good morning Angel, I love you. He told her he was bringing a change of clothes with him to her home for use on Christmas Day and he then drove to his lover's home in Nottinghamshire where he went shopping with Jackie and her daughter Amy. Although Jackie expected him at 10, he didn't arrive until after 3pm, blaming the house renovation. But this backed up the police theory that he needed time to stage the fake burglary before leaving his wife murdered in the house. Jackie, Amy and Palmer later went shopping in his Land Rover Discovery. Jackie told police that she noticed bin liners in the boot, which could have contained his blood-soaked clothing and the murder weapon. This was enough for police to charge 52-year-old Jonathan Palmer with the murder of his 57-year-old wife. Palmer denied murder and his defence QC, Lockhart, asked the jury not to evaluate the evidence encumbered by feelings of sympathy for the victim. He said that everyone, of course, had enormous sympathy for the victim's family and their sad loss. Palmer had engaged in unattractive conduct with his mistresses But there was never any inkling that he ever raised a finger against his wife in their 26 years together. Lockhart said that 6 foot 5 inch Palmer was a gentle giant and the jury would have to take an enormous step to link him to the crime. The couple had coped with a childless marriage together and looked after aged parents. They lived happily together as a team working through their problems he said. He claimed that even the discovery of Palmer's infidelity by his wife would not have led to the unimaginable violence. Although the prosecution claimed that Palmer faked a burglary and blamed an intruder for the death, Lockhart said it was just the opinion of an experienced forensic investigator. It wasn't a fact. And he attributed the inconsistencies in Palmer's accounts of police On his world almost literally falling apart when he was arrested on the night that his wife's body was found. From that moment, the die was cast, he said, but he had nothing to do with his wife's death. Summing up, the prosecution told the jury, He said that he adored his wife, but that is pure hypocrisy. He was only interested in himself and what gave him pleasure. He beat his wife to death. Her head was smashed like an egg. The jury at Worcester Crown Court didn't believe Palmer and took four hours to unanimously find him guilty at the end of a 15-day trial. He reacted by looking towards the ceiling. As he was then sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 18 years, Palmer visibly trembled and momentarily closed his eyes. The judge said that Palmer's affection for his wife had evaporated and he lied to his two unfortunate mistresses who were convinced that he was single. Your wife caught you using your secret phone and you recognised the disaster and humiliation you would suffer, he said. You reacted in anger and it grew, fuelled by the advantage of being rid of your wife and having a life to lead as you wanted to. The judge said that Melinda's family emphasised in a victim impact statement that the shock of the murder would live with them all their lives. And Melinda's mum, she was aged 93. Detective Chief Inspector Darren Elton said after the verdict that it had been a challenging case because Palmer kept changing his story. He said, Palmer is extremely deceitful and has a violent streak that goes beyond the normal. Not only did he murder his wife, he also strung along two innocent ladies who expected long-term relationships. They were beguiled and betrayed. The victim worked hard all her life and now should have been enjoying her retirement. We are very pleased with the verdict and relief for Melinda's family. The year after, Palmer challenged the safety of his conviction at the Appeal Court. He said there was no hard evidence against him and that the prosecution case was circumstantial. He admitted carrying on an affair, but denied it had motivated him to kill his wife, insisting he always had an affectionate relationship with her. He claimed he had an opportunity to commit the crime, and said he could produce fresh evidence suggesting that someone else was responsible. But the appeal judges rejected his complaints. The fresh material was in fact available to Palmer at the time of the trial, said the judge, and there was ample evidence of his own guilt. These grounds are bereft of arguable merit, the judge concluded, refusing him permission to appeal. So what do you make of what we've heard today? I think I read recently that there is a psychologist who specialises in treating people for Facebook envy. For those who believe that the lives their friends post on Facebook are real. Yeah, I know, people do actually believe that. As we know, perception and reality are very different things. And nowhere is that clearer than the story we've heard today. Jonathan Palmer was a highly unlikely murderer and nobody would have even suspected his infidelities. And then when he was found out, who would have thought such a quiet and gentle man would be capable of such violence when his secret life was exposed? As you listen to this now, picture Jonathan Palmer in his prison cell. How does he now feel about his actions? Surely this is one case where, however deluded, there is no way of convincing himself that anyone else is at all responsible for his current situation. Just him. When researching this story, I came across one comment about the case, talking about the author Kingsley Amis, when older and his sex drive had gone. He said, "'Looking back at my life, it's like I've been chained to an idiot.' probably how Jonathan Palmer would feel on his deathbed after the long years he would have spent behind bars. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please join our Facebook page to discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime. And to support the show and enable me to continue producing a weekly podcast, please support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime where you will find 16 bonus episodes to enjoy, along with other exclusive content and the video that I promised last week about the future of this podcast. Please come and support us at Patreon. Also, don't forget to get your copy of The Economist. Please just text CRIME to 78070. Well, that's all from me for today, so have a good one. And until we speak again, it's cheerio.